Well, good morning everybody. Good morning. Um, for our final day, can you believe it? It's gone so quickly. Um, and it's a great pleasure, I think, this morning to um, uh, have two speakers to begin. Dr. Reza Shah Kazani and Archimandrite Nicodemus Anagnostopoulos, but there's no sight of him as yet. So let's hope and pray that he will appear at some point. Uh, if not, we'll have a, more time for discussion of your paper, uh, Reza. Uh, Dr. Reza Shah Kazemi uh, is an author of works in comparative religion and Islamic studies. He is a senior research associate at the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London. Um, and he's asked to, if he could begin his presentation, uh, by playing a uh, chant uh, associated with Ibn Arabi, who we, we talked about yesterday. So we'll begin with that song. إلى دينه دان وقد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة لكن قد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة خامر عمر الغزل Just translating that for you all. I don't think I'll that. I'm still casting, still rolling that. Uh, this is, um, as some of you may know, one of the most famous of all of Ibn Arabi's poems from his collection called Tarjuman al Ashwaq, the translator of desires. 
and it reads as follows in English. My heart has become capable of every form. It is a pasture for gazelles and a convent for Christian monks and a temple for idols and the pilgrims' karma and the tables of the Torah and the book of the Quran. I follow the religion of love. Whatever way love's camels go, love is my religion, love is my faith. So this is, as I say, arguably one of the most uh, famous and influential of, of Ibn Arabi's poems, certainly in the Western world. And it expresses the uh, principle of universality proper to the vision of the heart of the true Sufi, which Jalaluddin Rumi has, of course, made also very famous in his poems that have been translated um, by various people in America. And for a long time, he was on the, the best-selling list of the New York Times. Um, Rumi puts it slightly differently in, in a few places. Uh, in the Masnavi, he says that Melat Esh as Hamedoni as Hamedina Jodast, Ashapanra Mazhabo Melat Chodast. The religion, the religious community, the Milla, the religious community of love, is separate from all religions. For the true lovers, <coughs> religious community and religious creed, melat the mazhab, chodast, is God. So the focus for the Sufi is on the reality, the heart, the haqiqa, the spiritual reality of the Absolute. And that spiritual reality is deemed to be infinite love. And not just deemed, but experienced, realized, made real as infinite love. And I want to start my presentation um, in about 10 minutes from our formal presentation with the slides. But what I want to do before going into the slides is in the spirit of this dialogue of the heart that Sarah Spiri began, well, for us, we, we uh, Abdu and I only came, of course, on on Tuesday. Um, so for us, we were really led into this that, this uh, conference by the idea of the dialogue of the heart, the duties of the heart of Bahia Ibn Makuda, the great Spanish mystic uh, of the Judaic Kabbalah tradition. So, in the spirit of, of continuing that dialogue, I just wanted to respond uh, to one or two things that have been uh, expressed. And I suppose particularly I'd like to start with um, what Michael uh, Kiran, I'm pointing behind him because I, I take it that he's, he's with us there. He is? Yeah. Um, when Michael he spoke. Is he waving? Yeah, he is. <laughs> he just did that. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael. Well, I, I really wanted to thank you very much for, for reminding us of the importance of, of Surah number 5 in the Quran when it comes to 
religious dialogues, and also it answers the question, um, why is there a diversity of religions? If there's only one God, why are there so many religions? Why? Whence this diversity? And Michael gave us a sort of summary of verse 48 in, in what he gave us on the screen up there. Um, it's surah number five, which is very important in many respects, and for dialogue extremely important. The surah number five is entitled Al-Ma'idah, which means the table spread with food, and it refers to the Last Supper. And it's, there's a, there are a, a lot of the verses are concerned with Jesus and Mary, and concerned with what in Christianity is called the Last Supper and with the Eucharist. And in fact, it's very important from the point of view of the Muslims' <coughs> belief in the sacramental efficacy of the Eucharist to the end of time. Because the supplication that Jesus makes is that he asks God to cause to descend a feast, food, table, from the heavens. There will be a spiritual festival for the first of us, an aid, literally, for the first of us, meaning himself and his disciples, and the last of us. So any Muslim who believes that the Quran is the revealed word of God should believe also in the sacramental efficacy, a salvific efficacy of the central Eucharistic rite of Christianity the bread and the wine. Now in this surah we have verse number 48 of which Michael gave us a summary. Part of it was the translation of word for word, the rest of it was a kind of summary of, of that verse which is quite a long one and I'm sorry I didn't bring my laptop and I didn't have a chance to type this out so I can't put it up there but um, I can just give you a, 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 a closer verbatim translation of that verse. It begins, For each of you, referring to religious communities, For each of you, we have established from yourselves, extremely important from the esoteric point of view, the bathing that Sarah was talking about with Bahya. All about going into the heart. The heart is the bathin, which means literally the inwardly hidden. Therefore, we can translate it as the, the esoteric, which in Greek means the same thing the inward as opposed to the exoteric, which is the vahir, which is the outward, the apparent. Vahir also means, by the way, the backbone of something, and the bathin means the belly. So it's almost like we're referring to an animal that's walking and that its belly is hidden from view but its backbone is visible. So the vahir is the outward, the apparent, the exit, but it's also the backbone. It's something that's very strong and necessary. The bathing is what's inward, mysterious, hidden and relation, related to this idea of the, the belly, what's, what's within, what's hidden. Which is also related, by the way, to the word rahma which is related to Rahim, which is the womb, the womb of the mother, which is going to figure prominently, I hope, in the slides that I'm going to share with you. 
Um, so, the verse says, for each of you religious, for each of you communities, for each of you we have established from yourselves, meaning from something deep within yourselves, we have given you these religions. Shir'a is the way we get the word Sharia from, an outward law, and Minhaj, a path, which is I, I understood by the Sufis to refer to the inward spiritual path, which is the esoteric complement to the outward exoteric law. So it's a law and a path. That's how the verse begins. Shir'atama Minhaja. If God had willed, he could have made you one ummah. But he made you as one religious community. But he made you as you are in order to test you by means of what he has given you. So what he has given all of us in our different religions are spiritual paths and legal prescriptions which are so many tests, which have come from our own inner selves. Why in other places in the Quran, it says that the Prophet has come, a Prophet, a messenger, has come from your own souls. So this messenger is nothing but an exteriorization, a personification, a manifestation of your own inmost reality. And that's why you recognize that prophet as speaking the truth, because you recognize, recognize the same truth that you constitute by your very essence, and which is there deep within your heart, but is buried under the rubble of your fallen second nature. So it's a question of rediscovering what and who you are through the religious revelation that is itself an exteriorization for the sake of an interiorization. The religion exteriorizes what you are in order that you interiorize what that religion is. You go back into yourself and you go back into the bathroom, whence sprang all of these religious revelations. So, the verse continues. Now we come to what Michael emphasized. So compete with each other in good acts, in good deeds, in good things, in all things that are good. Have a healthy competition. Musabaqa. Uh, have a healthy competition, compete with each other in goodness. In the Dalai Lama gave a, a wonderful presentation to the monks at Gethsemane in Kentucky. And he began his talk to these monks by saying, look, we're, we're fellow monks. You're in Christianity, we're in Buddhism. And let us compete with each other in our contemplation in our meditation, in our reflections upon the ultimate reality. He was expressing there exactly what the Quran is saying, is the whole purpose for this diversity of religious paths and ways. Compete with each other in acts of goodness, compete with each other 
in, as it were, mutual stimulation for the one thing necessary. Interiorization, going back, going, following the path to the heart. And this is the title, Paths to the Heart, is the title one of the best books on religious dialogue that I've ever read. And that is edited by Professor James C. Katzinger. Uh, he passed away, sadly, a couple of years ago. And he edited this book. He's, he was University Professor of Religious Studies at uh, the University of South Carolina. And he invited scholars and practitioners from the Orthodox East and from Sufism to come together in South Carolina in 2001, just a month or so after 9-11. And I had the awful experience of having to go from New York down to South Carolina on a domestic flight one month after 9-11. And in those days I had a black beard as well as black hair. And as I stepped onto the plane, one of the last passengers to come in transit from London, and there were all these Americans sitting there in their seats, packed plane, I can tell you, it was like walking the gauntlet. <laughs> the looks, I just had to say, right, look down, don't look into their eyes, just look down. So, but it was well worth it. It was one of the most astonishing and stimulating and uplifting experiences I've ever had an interfaith dialogue back in 2001. So, anyway, back to the verse. Fastabikul khayrat ila rabbikum marji'ukum jami'an fayunabbi'ukum bimakuntum fihi taktalifum. Unto your Lord is your return. All of you, from all your religious communities, you return to your Lord. And he will inform you about those things regarding which you had differences of opinion. Exactly what Michael was emphasizing. That you will inevitably have differences of opinion this side of the grave. A Muslim will not have the same religious ideas, conceptions, opinions, orientations, <coughs> flavor, even in the path to the heart. The Sufi, on the way to discovery, his or her heart will have insights into what the Jewish mystic or the Christian mystic is experiencing and realizing, but it will not have the same vogue. It will not have the same taste. For as long as the individual remains the individual, for as long as that mystic has not attained transcendence, complete transcendence, complete union with the divine, in which case there is no individuality to talk about, in which case there is no religion to talk about. There is no subjective experience, no form taken by the rapture anymore, because there is complete and total indissoluble union, where in Sufi terms it's total fana has been experienced, total extinction of the individual substance. It's gone. The water has returned, the drop has returned to the ocean. There is no difference anymore. And at that point, there's no difference of religious orientation. There's nothing except the one. And this is why, in another very famous poem of Rumi, some say it wasn't written by him, but it's certainly in his spirit. And the person who did write it could very well put Rumi at the bottom, because it came from the spirit of the master, even if it was written by one or two uh, generations, a person one or two generations later. 
And he sings as follows in this poem. Che tadbir, a musalmanan, ke man khudra nemidanan. Na tarsa, na yahudam man, na gabram, na musalmanan. What do you make of this, O Muslims? Che tadbir, a musalmanan, ke man khudra nemidanan. I don't know myself. I don't know who I am. What do you make of it, my Muslim brothers and sisters? I don't know myself. I'm not a Christian and I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Zoroastrian. And I'm not a Muslim. Na Shariam, na Bariam, na Bariam, na Bahriam, na Azadam, na. It goes on. It's an amazing, amazing poet, bringing the, all of the dualities. I am not of the east, nor of the west, nor of the earth, nor of the sky, nor of Adam, nor of Eve. And it goes on until you come to the crescendo. Now, Anthony, Bishop Anthony is looking up at, behind me as if there's the verses behind me. Someone putting them up. <laughs> no. I thought someone had found it and put it up. <laughs> so the, it builds up to this extraordinary crescendo that Nagabram um, Namosaman, and then after saying, I'm neither the east nor the west nor of the, the ocean nor of the, the land nor the sea, he says the verses of the Holy Quran. He, God, is the outer. And this is where we get the polarity that Sarah was referring to, the Batin and the Lahir, the inwardly hidden and the outwardly apparent. Um, God says in the Quran, He is the first, He is the last, referring to God. He is the outwardly apparent, he is the inwardly hidden. So Ruby refers to this verse, saying that my true identity goes back to this expression of the ultimate nature of divine reality, which is the beginning of all things, the end of all things, the outwardly apparent of everything, the inwardly hidden of everything. And then he says, I see the one, I call the one, I know the one. That oneness is a deconstruction of all relative levels of identity. And it's only at that level of unitive realization that the lesser levels of identity, whether I'm a man or a woman, or from Iran, or from Arabia, or from this religion, or from that religion, all of it dissolves there in that ultimate realization of, uh, of transcendent unity. But anything short of that, there will be religious differences. My individuality will kick in. Now it's a question of what do I do with the individuality? Do I have an exoteric, outward, dogmatic, exclusivist relationship with my faith and with the other? Or is it an esoteric, interiorizing, spiritual and integrating relationship vis-a-vis -vis the other? And that's where we're hoping that we're talking about these bridges, these, these paths to the heart. The path to the heart is from the outward, egocentric identity to the inward, 
theocentric identities, from the ego to the heart. That's the spiritual path that we're all embarking upon. And I think that our dialogue will be richer the more each one of us is attuned to the requirements of that path from the outward, egocentric aspect of our identity to our inward heart, to our theocentric, centered on that divine spark at the center of our own heart. If uh, we were to be asked uh, what is the essence of the message of Islam? I would venture this is the answer. Uh, using the Quranic verse, verse 30 of chapter number 30, and it's a verse that will come in, in the slides um, at a point when we're talking now about the, the two mothers of Revelation, of Mary and Fatima. Um, and this verse that answers the question for us as to what is the essence of Islam, the religion. And I don't mean simply this well-known distinction between Islam, the form, uh, the formal religion that was inaugurated by the Quran through Muhammad in the 7th century in Arabia, as opposed to Islam, the meaning of the word which is making peace through surrender to God. So you become at peace. That's the, the normal way in which people go from a kind of outward view of Islam as a formal dogmatic faith to a universal spiritual quality. It's the transition from Islam, the religion, to Islam, the meaning which is making peace through submission to God. The literal meaning is submission, but also is liberated to the word for peace. So, if I would, I'd be asked that question, what is the essence of Islam, I wouldn't dare to give an answer from myself. I would just say, well, let's see what the Quran says. And I would choose this verse to answer the question. Verse 30 of chapter number 30, very easy to remember. It's also the, the chapter entitled Arum, which is all about the Byzantine, which refers to the Byzantine Christian Empire. Uh, and in verse 30, it says, now the reason I'm going into Arabic is not to show off astaghfirullah, uh, it's because I don't know these verses off by heart in English. I have to go into the Arabic where I remember them off by heart and then I can remember the English. So it says, hanifa. So orient your essence, your face, your purpose to religion, liddin. Hanifa, as one who is a Hanif. Now, who is the Hanif? Hai? Who is the Hanif par excellence? Abraham. Abraham is the Hanif. Abraham is the person referred to as the Hanif, the one who is ever inclined towards the transcendent reality, always swerving, literally, away from falsehood and idolatry and towards the truth, the one true God. So Abraham is the Hanif. So the Quran says, turn your whole purpose to religion. Attune yourself, orient yourself towards religion. It doesn't say which one, it just says Lidin, to the religion as such. As one who is by nature upright like Abraham. Fitrat Allah. 
Now you're told, what is this religion? It's the fitrah of Allah. The creation, the original creation of God. That pattern, that original creative seed or pattern or paradigm or quintessence, according to which God created every human being. All human beings are created according to this thing called the fitrah of Allah the creation, the pattern, the, the primordial nature established by God but also esoterically it can mean the actual nature of God according to the very nature of God so we're coming very close here to the Genesis idea of God making man in his image and likeness but this fitra is even more, if you like, esoterically suggestive because it relates directly to one of the names of God, Al-Fatir one of God's names is the Creator. There are many names for God as regards creation. Al-Khaliq, the Creator is the most normal one. Al-Bari, Al-Badi'a, Al-Fatir. Al-Fatir is the one who creates by making cleavage, literally, by splitting two things. It's, it's, it's the, the root meaning of the Arabic, it's, it's something like that cleaving something apart and creating something out of it. I'm the one who created this well. I'm the one who dug it. You would use an Arabic. So I'm the one who's the creator. I dug it and out of it came this water. So that's the kind of idea that's in the back of the, that resonates for the Arabic speaker, one who knows his or her language. The father is the one who cleaved something out of his, his, her absolute nature to create relativity. And that relativity is the pattern, the fitra, that is imprinted on the relative by the absolute, by virtue of this creative act. And that's the fitra. So, fatarannasa, all of human beings are created according to this primordial pattern that goes back to the very nature of the divine order, the creator. There is no change in this creation of God. That is the eternally established religion. The deen that is always there, has always been there, will always be there. It's not a religion that changes from time and space, in time and space. That is the true, eternally subsistent religion. But the majority of human beings simply don't know that this is religion as such. Not such and such a religion. It's the religion of the heart, the religion of the fitra. And this is what I propose in the talk uh, Mary and Fatima help us to <laughs> Taking away the temptation. <laughs> it's very uh, appropriate that uh, Bishop Anthony should take that glass of water and put it in the opposite end of the room. <laughs> this is the answer to an implicit prayer I may have had. Lord, lead us not into temptation. <laughs> um, so, where were we? Yes, yeah, so Mary and Fatima, as 
mothers of revelation are leading us to the religion of the heart. They're leading us to the religion of the fitrah. They're leading us to what we are in our inmost reality and they show us what we are in our inmost reality. So we'll go into the, um, how long do I have, Peter, before? Well, um, our commander at Newton Games doesn't appear, so you can go on. Oh, he's not coming. Famous last word. What, he's not coming? Is he not coming? Well, it's not he's appearing. He's appear. 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 oh. oh. So I think you can just carry on. All right. Thank you. The floor is <laughs> So, I've started by asking the question, are we talking about three mothers or one? Is that where we are? Yeah. I've got, I'll slightly shift it. Actually, I've got my. I can, I can read it. I can see when you, when you move that. Oh, that's very kind, thank you. So, um, here we have the obvious, the, to begin with, the obvious uh, designation of the Blessed Virgin, Mother Mary, Theotokos, Mother of God. We have this second, much less famous designation of Fatima which is Umma Abiha. The Prophet said to her, you are the mother of her father. Very, very mysterious. How can Muhammad call his daughter his own mother? And that's what he said to her. You are the mother of your own father. And then we have this third, oh, I am saying three mothers. We have this equally mysterious designation in the Quran, which is the Umm al-Kitab, the mother of the book. And I prefer to translate Kitab here as revelation. Kitab literally just means that which is written, but here it's obvious that it's what is revealed. The writing is just the outward expression of that which is being revealed by God to humanity. And we have this phrase, this, this title, the mother of the book, in a verse that we will come to a little bit later, I'll just tell you it now. The Surah Az-Zukhruf, a golden ornament, referring to golden ornaments in paradise. Hamim wal kitab al-mubin, inna ja'alnahu qur'anan arabiyan la'almakum ta'qilun wa innahu fi ummil kitab ladayna la'aliyun hakim. Hamim by the book that makes everything clear, meaning the Quran itself. We have established this as an Arabic recitation, an Arabic Qur'an, because that's what Qur'an means. It doesn't mean book. It means a recitation, a recital, a reading. <clears throat> a an Arabic recitation in order that you might understand, you might use your intellect. So in the first instance, that's addressed to the Arabs. They say, look, we're talking to you in Arabic, we want you to understand this. So we're revealing this, this recitation in Arabic for you. But there's an esoteric meaning there, which goes back to the very nature of the Arabic language itself. And maybe we'll come to that later in the questions, but I better not go there now. All three, the Theotokos, the mother of her father, the mother of Revelation, all of these three, are symbolic expressions at different ontological levels of one supra-cosmic archetype. 
An archetype that goes beyond the cosmos, it produces the cosmos, and not just produces revelation or books or scriptures. Because it refers to the maternal womb, and I mentioned this earlier, the Rahim, which is related to the word Rahma. In fact, God, according to the prophets, God says himself in a statement which is not in the Quran, which is called a Hadith Qudsi, a holy utterance of God in which he speaks in the first person through the tongue of the prophet. And God says, I have derived my name Ar-Rahman, my name the All-Compassionate, the All-Merciful, the All-Loving. And here we have to note the, the, the resonance of love in the root of Rahman, which is there in the Hebrew, as Pai, I'm sure, will tell us. Arham Hai Adonai, one of the Psalms of David, he says, I love thee, my Lord, using that same root. He means I love. I'm not having mercy upon God. But David says, I love you, my Lord, in the Psalms. So this root in Aramaic and Hebrew, this rahama, uh, this root, has this meaning of love as well as compassion and mercy. And that's there in the background for Arabic, for, for Arabic speakers as well. So Ar-Rahman can be translated as the lovingly compassionate, the lovingly merciful. And God says, according to the Prophet, I derived, I actually derive etymologically, I derive my own name Ar-Rahman, which is arguably the most important name of Allah, of all the 99 names and all of the others that are not in the Quran. Call upon Allah or call upon Ar-Rahman says in the Quran, indicating that Rahman is the most uh, suggestive, indicative name of God as regards his, her, its intrinsic nature, Rahman, loving, compassion, loving, mercy. So, I have derived my name Ar-Rahman from Ar-Rahim, from the womb, explicitly there it is, in the heart of the Islamic revelation. God says, I have derived my most important, most suggestive name, Ar-Rahman, from the womb of the woman. So this is the maternal archetype expressing itself from the sacred, from the divine feminine, down into our human world. They are expressions at different ontological levels of one supracosmic archetype the maternal womb, the Rahim, which contains the seeds of both creation and revelation. And now in my printout, I've chopped off the last part of this. One of the clearest expressions of this maternal... Yeah, you can read from here. Yeah. One of the clearest expressions of this maternal archetype is what is called in Hindu scriptures, Hiranyagarbha. The golden womb. Heranya is the, the golden, and the womb is Garbha. According to one of the Puranas, the Manu Smriti, Brahma is the creator, the, mas the masculine form. Remember in Hinduism, and I'm glad that, that Jason has returned to, to give us Mother India as we talk about The Heranya Garbha in the Puranas is referred to as being the sea, the Brahma, not the absolute Brahma which is neuter, but Brahma in the masculine is one of the Trimurti, one of the three manifestations of Ishvara, 
which is Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. So Brahma, the creator god, is said to have been in this as a seed in this womb of Hiranyagarbha. So here you have the idea of the womb, the golden womb. The whole of the creator god is there. So it's a kind of theotokos we're talking about there. Not the mother of God, the absolute, but the mother of God, the son. The mother of God, the creator. The mother of God, the second person of the Trinity. And that is distinct from God, the first person of the Trinity, the father, the pure, inexpressible, inconceivable absolute, the father as such. And I'm talking here more from an orthodox point of view, I know, uh, that from the Eastern Orthodox point of view, we cannot see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three modalities, Sabellian modalism, all the rest of it, of three aspects or divinities or whatever. We have to see the Father as the sole repository of the unity of the Godhead and the Son and the Spirit as his two hands, to use an image of Saint Irenaeus. This is the Trinity. It's as if God is the Father is the body, and when he works with creation, he works with his Son and his Spirit. It's the same being, but these are the two hands that he uses to create. Anyway, so when we have this Hindu idea of Hiranyagarbha, the cosmic womb, where Brahma, the creator God, is even in that womb. So we're talking about the creative principle, what Fritjof Schuon calls the, the level of being as opposed to beyond being. You also have that in Eckhart, that when the persons work at the level of being, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as persons are working at the level of being. But beyond being, there's no work to be done. There are no persons. There are no distinctive persons anymore in the essence, in the one, the ground, the ultimate Godhead from which we've all sprung. So we're talking about the level of being, the level of ontology, the level whence flows the cosmos and existence, as opposed to beyond being, which is the, the essence, the above and beyond all, sonship or begetting. And Eckhart also says, at the level of the one, there is no begetting and there is no begotten. Almost echoing the Surah of Ikhlas, Surah number 112, the Surah of Sincerity, or rendering pure, which says, as many of you may know, one of the most difficult surahs in the whole of the Quran when it comes to interfaith dialogue. Because it says, Qul Allahu Ahad. Say God is one, Allah is He is the self-subsisting. He does not beget, he is not begotten, and there is nothing that can possibly resemble him. So it's a kind of explicit denunciation of the very essence of of. Christ is the Son of God, Christianity being begotten, not created, but begotten is still the word, and that is what the Quran says God does not do. So, it's difficult in terms of interfaith dialogue, but it's not insurmountable. We'll go into the metaphysics of that later, but let's carry on. According to the late scholar of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, James Cuffsing, who I referred to earlier, died 2020, Theotokos is the most important of all the titles of the Blessed Virgin. This is a quote now from his excellent article, The Virgin, in Sophia, Volume 6, Number 2, Winter 2000. It comes with the full weight of dogmatic tradition 
unlike such epithets of liturgical hymnody as Ark of the Covenant, Gate of Heaven, Celestial Ladder, Cause of the Deification of Men, which have the support merely of pious convention and traditional usage, this name, Theotokos, which was formally bestowed, which was formally bestowed on the Virgin by an ecumenical council, that now I've put there in brackets, this is referring to the third council at Ephesus, which was against the Nestorian, quote, heresy. Um, and as such, its acceptance is obligatory for all the faithful. So all Christians are, as it were, obliged to accept this title, Theotokos, however daring and elliptical and apparently blasphemous it may appear to certain understandings of, of religion and of the oneness of God. Historically, the title is a priori Christological, of course, having been promulgated, promulgated in order to underscore the unity of the two natures in the single person of Christ. And yet the implications for an esoteric Mariology are obvious. So I don't think I need to elaborate upon that in the present company. We can maybe go into that asking Bishop Anthony and, and, and Peter and Archbishop Kevin um, to help us to understand that, uh, perhaps in the community better. So if we can go to the next slide, please. Mary is the protectress of what came after her, the glory of the earthborn, the adornment of all creation, the cause of what preceded her. Remember what we said about Fatima? She's the mother of her own father. It's exactly what Gregory Palamas is saying here about Mary, that she is the cause of what came before her, of her own father. She caused what preceded and caused her. Exactly the same as Fatima. Exactly the same paradox or inexpressibility. It's a paradox, like a koan, a Zen koan, that consider the sound of one hand clapping. Consider this woman who is the mother of her own father. You can't do it. The mind just breaks down. The mental carapace is cracked apart. And through the cracks, the light comes in. Who said that? Leonard Cohen. Who? Is it Leonard Cohen? Leonard Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> Again. I was waiting for Hyde to come and tell us that. <laughs> We were talking about this last night, yeah. about Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. And actually, I think Bruce Springsteen. We've got another Jewish <laughs> trinity. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen is Jewish, isn't he? The, 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 uh, anyway, two of the three were Jewish. Yeah, we've got a kind of trinity there. Uh, so, Mary is the protectress. And the, of what came after her, the glory of the earth, or the adornment of all creation, the cause of what preceded her, the head and consummation of all that is holy. So this description I'm saying of, of cause of preceded, closely related to Fatima's epithet, mother of her father. So go to the next slide, please. The recovery of primordiality. This is St. Andrew. Crete, who I'd never heard of until I'd read this in, in Katsinger, which is also from his, his excellent article in Sophia uh, on the Blessed Virgin. 
According to St. Andrew of Crete, when the mother of him who is beauty itself is born, our nature recovers in her person its ancient privileges. In Mary, we recover our birthright, our ancient privileges that we've lost through the fall. So when she was born, it's as if all of us now have access again to what we are by nature. And from that basis, we can go to what we might become, through grace, what Jesus is by nature. So, it's fashioned according to a perfect model, truly worthy of God. And this fashioning is a perfect restoration. This restoration, this is a brilliant series. This restoration is a divinization, and this divinization is an assimilation to the primordial state. What we heard earlier about the fitra, what we really are as human beings, but what we have lost through the fall, each and every <coughs> single one of us. And that's why each and every single one of us needs revelation, needs religion, needs the rope from heaven. Whatever it may be, it is the way in which God reaches out to us and helps us to become what we are by nature, but what we have made degenerate through the fall. Each and every single one of us. And any one of us who says, well, I don't need religion because actually I know who I am. I've achieved self-realization. Uh, Bruce. The boss. The boss. I am Jewish. He's still Jewish. He's still His ancestry is Jewish after all. We'll never know. Alright, so rather than being saved by the bell, we were saved by the boss. <laughs> um, yeah, I was about to, to launch into a sort of tirade against people who think that they're so spiritual and so uh, realized as individuals that they don't need religion, they don't need a religare, they don't need to be rebound once again to what they have been dissociated from. Uh, and so if such a person comes along, all I can say is either you're the greatest pretentious hypocrite of all time or you're God himself. Um, anyway, this restoration is a divinization, and this divinization is an assimilation to the primordial state. That's what theosis, that's what deificatio is all about. A restoration to your primordial state, to you as you are made in the image of God, and even further than that, to you insofar as you are nothing but the self-manifestation, the tajalli, as Ibn Arabi would say, the self-manifestation of the divine hapipa, the divine reality, the spiritual reality of God. So we go on to the next one. Primordiality of the heart. This is from Fritjof Schuon, who uh, I couldn't help thinking if, if Michael is, is... Did we lose them for a bit? No, we lost them for a little bit, but then we reconnected. All right. It's okay. So my, when Michael said that René Girard is regarded by some of the Girardiens as having the answer to all, to everything, 
and enthusiasm to nothing, I couldn't help thinking about how I regard Fritjof Schuon and René Guénon and Martin Lins and Titus Burkhardt and the perennial philosophers who, uh, you know, I'm one of the, the very um, simplistic, if you like, followers of these great sages who believe that they do have the answers to everything, it's just that we don't necessarily understand them. And so my task is always to help people, when I, when I quote Fritjof Schuon, first of all to say, I don't understand everything that Schuon has said. I just feel in my heart that yes, he's got the answers to all the questions that I've ever had. So, the divine Maya, femininity in divinis, is not only that which projects and creates, it is also that which attracts and liberates. The Blessed Virgin as Sedes Sapientia, this is, it's a, I think it's in the in a chapter called Sedes Sapientia, which means the, the throne of wisdom, and it's where the Blessed Virgin herself is understood to be identified with the, the, the throne of Solomon, the throne of wisdom, which descends towards us and which we too, whether we know it or not, bear in our very essence. It is precisely by virtue of this potentiality or virtuality that wisdom comes down upon us. This wisdom is either potentially within us as human beings or virtual, it's on its way to becoming actual. From potentiality to virtuality to actuality. This wisdom is potential or virtual within us and it's for this reason that it can descend upon us in the form of, of the Blessed Virgin, in the form of Sophia, the Divine Lady, the Lady Wisdom. The imminent seat of wisdom is the heart of man. And this also relates to a, uh, a saying of the Prophets that the heart, the heart of the human being Al-Insan is the Arsh al-Rahman. The heart of the human being is the throne of God, defined as al-Rahman again, the throne of the All-Merciful. It comes back to this idea. The holiness of humanity. This is now, we're going into the perception of Mary from Sufi points of view. Some great Sufis. Um, Ruth Dehan Bakli is one of the very greatest, and he is someone who, um, even William Chittick, to, to whose works we've made reference here in relation to Ibn Arabi, William Chittick would also agree that Ruth Dehan Bakli prefigured many of the most fundamental perspectives of Ibn Arabi in his monumental work, the Arais of Bayan Komch and the Quran, but also in his um, other works, his treatises, especially on the metaphysics of beauty, which Corbin has translated, Abhar al-Ashaqeen, Ovid Corbin has translated into French, I don't think there's an English translation yet, of the jasmine, the flowers of the lovers, the Abhar al-Ashaqeen, the jasmine, the flowers of the lovers. Um, and Ruzbehan is one of the very greatest metaphysicians of the Islamic tradition. Um, and arguably the greatest metaphysician of aesthetics, meaning the metaphysical meaning of beauty in the whole tradition. And he wrote this quite large commentary, a wonderful esoteric exegesis of the Quran. And in 
uh, verse 16 of chapter 19, which is the chapter entitled Mary. And for those of you who don't know, we can go into that in the Q&A if we have this Archimandrite doesn't doesn't come. We, we may have time to go into this chapter, which is absolutely marvelous in terms of of, of uh, helping non-Muslims understand the reason why Mary holds such an exalted rank in Islam because of this, this chapter on her in the Quran and other things the Prophet has said. We may come to that later. But anyway, Buckley says on this verse in the chapter entitled Mary, and make mention of Mary in the scripture, when she withdrew from her people to a chamber looking east. It's a chamber looking east. Buckley says, the true indication here, the ishara, what's being pointed to here, what's being hinted at, alluded to, suggested, mystically speaking, is that the substance of Mary, the Johar of Maryam, her very substance, is the substance of the primordial nature of human holiness. And there we have that word again. The fitra al-Qudus. The primordial human nature of Qudus, which is a quality relating to al-Qudus, which is one of the names of God, which means the all-holy. So the very substance of Mary, from this Sufi's point of view, basing himself on what the Quran is saying, is that this Marian substance is what reveals to us the primordial nature, our fitra, our primordial nature of intrinsic, immutable, inalienable holiness. That's what we are by nature, and that is what Mary manifests by her very being. So, and I've, I've already given this the second part of it. What is the fitra? Quran 30.30, and I've already given you that verse. So I've added, theologians may debate the question whether Mary was a prophetess or not. In Islamic theology, exoteric scholars, they say, was she a, a, a nabiya, a feminine nabi, a feminine prophet, or not? The majority say no, because to be a nabi, you have to be a man. But this is a kind of, I would argue, an unimportant sideline for the main question, which is her sp the spiritual understanding we can get of the Marian reality through the Quran and through the prism of Sufi exegesis on these verses. So for the Sufis, the question is immaterial. She was the perfect personification of the quintessential, immutable human nature, Al-Fitra. So, this is another aspect of, of what it means to be the perfect manifestation of the Fitra. Perfect human nature. What is it? It's perfect receptivity to the world. Kashani, another great Sufi in the school of Ibn Arabi, he comments, and this is actually in a, 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 a two-volume commentary on the Quran, which was attributed for many centuries, I think, to Ibn Arabi because of the proximity of the perspective, because so much of what Kashani was saying was like Ibn Arabi. So they call it the Tafsir Ibn al-Arabi, 
but actually it's known to be by Abdul Razak al-Kashani, who was a uh, hundred years later. And in the school, in the lineage of, of Ibn Arabi. So he's commenting now on another verse relating to the Blessed Virgin. We breathed into her of our spirit. From our ruh. We breathed of our spirit into her. And he comments, what is taken into account is in worthiness for the charismatic gift from God, the karama, is virtue and faith, such as the chastity of Mary, which signifies her believing the words of her Lord and her obedience, which prepared her for the acceptance, kabul, receptivity, the same word we get kabbalah from, the receptivity to the word which is come, it comes about through obedience, through faith, through virtue. These are the elements which calibrate your receptivity to the revelation of the Lord. Becoming a human being through obedience, through chastity, which <coughs> implies perfect virtue and absolute faith, certainty. So this is what gives lies to her acceptance of the breath of the Spirit of God. She then was rendered receptive to this. The soul adorned by the excellence of abstention and chastity is a receptive. Now chastity in Islamic terms is, I can't remember the Arabic word, it's not the same as in, in Christian context. It's about complete self-control. Complete what Michael referred to as the, the regulation of desire, is it, that Girard said religion is all about? the regulation of desire, the modulation of desire. It's all about that. It's all about self-control of this element that's called hawa in the Quran. Desire, the same thing as what the Buddha referred to as Trishna or Tanha in Pali. It's all about this thing that generates the seeds of suffering, your desire, your hawa. And it's that which in the Quran, Quran is referred to as the great idol of the ego. Do you see the one who takes as his God his own desire? That's the real inner idolatry. That's the kufr or the shirk, khafi, the hidden, hidden idolatry, where you're following your own hawa, your own egotistical desire. So this is what he's referring to in terms of, of self-control. Al-Ghazali we referred to yesterday with Sister Joe. Sister Joe had an Al-Ghazali moment, not a senior moment, when she lost her capacity to speak. That's exactly what precipitated the crisis of Al-Ghazali, the greatest teacher of Islam, the greatest scholar, the greatest theologian, early 30s. People coming from all over the Muslim world to listen to the great man at his feet, he stands up to speak and he can't say a word. God took from him his capacity to speak. And that precipitated his understanding that he had been a hypocrite all these years, becoming the great master of Baghdad, of the Abbasid Muslim dynasty, this world-conquering empire. What was he? A hypocrite. Why? Because he was preaching all of these wonderful divine things, but he was inwardly motivated by his own desire for fame and glory and reputation. So he was hit by God, and he went into a crisis, and he had to leave Baghdad, leave his people, become a wandering itinerant dervish. 
Just go off for eight years and find God within. Find sincerity. Find the Marian receptivity to the word. Echlas. Sincerity. Getting rid of hypocrisy and becoming more receptive. And that's why we call him the reviver of Islam, the Mujaddid of his era, the one who brought Islam back to life through his volumes, Ihya Ulum al-Din, the revival of the sciences of religion. He breathed sincerity, which is another word for Sufism, Sid, the Kitab al-Sidq is one of the manuals of Sufism. It's all about sincerity. He breathed the spirit of Sufi sincerity back into the outward mechanical rites and so on of the religion. So that there was now a marriage between the Lahir and the Bahir in the Ihyadu Mukim. So I'm very grateful to Sister Joe for sharing with us that Ghazali moment and of, 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 of coming back and talking to us so beautifully about St. Therese of Avila. When, uh, when God gave you back the, the gift of, of, of speech. So, I mentioned this, it came to my mind only because Al-Ghazali says in one of his writings that The totality of felicity resides in this. Total happiness is right here is in this that the human being should master his own soul. And the totality of wretchedness, of hell, resides in the opposite. That the man, the, the human being, should be mastered by his own ego. So here, this whole idea of chastity, of self-control, is mastery of self, dominion of self, which is the prerequisite, the prelude, the presentiment of transcendence of the self. That's what's being referred to in saying that we have to learn from Mary the meaning of obedience and, quote, chastity. It's about self-control, effa, complete control over the soul, over the, its desires. So it becomes a receptacle, again the word kabbalah, pabila, for the effusion, the failure one, of the Holy Spirit and becoming pregnant with Jesus. We, each of us can become pregnant with Jesus. Which is what the heart illumined by the light of the Spirit, believing in the words of the Lord and the wise tenets of divinely revealed religions, in the plural, note. And this is something which I perhaps should have said earlier, which is that, that part of being a believer in the religion of Islam, as it's expressed in the Holy Quran. If you want to say, I am a Muslim, what, do you, what, what does that imply with regard to other religions? It implies, you have, it implies that you have to believe in all of the other religions. And this is also in verse 48 of chapter number 5 where um, part of that verse says, we have revealed, this is a long verse, and even though I said to you I'd give you more of, it, of the, the, uh, the actual words than, than Michael did, um, and I gave you the translation, I didn't mention this very important principle, which is that 
in verse 5, 48, verse 48 of chapter number 5, the Quran refers to itself as a musaddiq and a muhaymin, as a confirmer and a muhaymin, a protector and a guardian, and a confirmer, a confirmation, musaddiq, same root in, as, as the one in Hebrew for the tasaddiq, the righteous human being. A musaddiq is that which confirms the truth. Muhaymin is that which protects and guards. And what is it that the Quran says it's confirming and protecting? All of the scriptures that were revealed before the Quran. So as a Muslim who believes in the revelation of the Quran, you have to believe in all the religions. And if you were to ask the question of a Muslim, what is it you believe? What's your creed? Where is your credo? You could, you could refer to verse 85 of chapter 2, Surah Al-Baqarah, and say, Amana Rasul bi'a'unzila ilayhi min rabbihi wal mu'minun kullun amana billah wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulihi la nufarritu bayna ahadin min rusulihi. Every Muslim is supposed to say this as regards their credo. We, like the Prophet, we believe, like the Prophet does, in what was revealed to him, the Holy Quran. And all of us believe in God and his angels and his scriptural revelations and his prophets, his messengers. And then we're all supposed to say, La nufarriqu bayna ahadin min rusulihi. We do not make any differentiation, distinction between any of God's messengers. It's not for us to say that one is better than another, according to the Quran. In the Muslim tradition, we refer to the Prophet as the greatest Prophet, the greatest human being. But according to the Quran, we're not allowed to say who's better and who's not. We say, It's up to God to say, in another verse, we have elevated some of the messengers above others. So there is a distinction in the divine hierarchy, but we don't know that. We just have to say, if we're believers of the Quranic revelation, this is what we believe in God, his angels, his prophets, sorry, his scriptures, and all of his messengers, and we don't distinguish between any of them. That is what it means to be a true believer in the Quranic revelation. And how few think. So let's yes, mother of her father, mother of the Lord. The Prophet said to Fatima, you are the mother of her father, Um Abiha. Remember how Mary was referred to by Gregory Palamas. Uh, Gregory Palamas was at the cause of what preceded her. Ummul Kitab comes in two places, at verse 7, chapter 3, and verse 39, 13. But in the place where I referred to it is here, Zuhra 43, verse 4. And we'll just repeat these words. Hameen, by the scripture which elucidates. Truly we have appointed this an Arabic Quran, Arabic recital, that you might comprehend. And indeed it is, in the mother of scripture, in our presence, exalted wise, Aliyun Hakimun, elevated and wise. So let's go to the next slide, please. Kashani on this, the meaning of mother of the book. According to his commentary on Al-Zukhruf 43.4, the book is what? Is Muhammad. He's the book. So he's like the Logos. He is the Word. 
And Fatima is like Theotokos, the mother of the word, the mother of God, quiet word. This is the key, let's call it an archetypal resonance that I wanted to bring out in this talk. Not that I'm saying that this equals that. It's not an equivalence, not even a metaphysical equivalence. It's a mystical resonance that I'm suggesting can be found in these ways of referring to the maternal figure in Christianity and in Islam. The book, according to Kashani, is Muhammad himself, his archetypal reality, his being, if you like, the word, before it has become book, the breath of God, the Haqiqa Muhammadiyah. Now, if that's the case, if, if Kashani gives me permission to refer to Muhammad as the book of which the Ummul Kitab is the mother, then I would just take it one stage further and say when Muhammad refers to Fatima as his mother, we can say that the mother of the book is personified by Fatima as well as by Mary. In which case, Fatima's designation, Umm Abiha, mother of her father, implies that she is the, or a, personification of the archetype in question here, <coughs> mother of the book. Another Sufi, the Ottoman Ismail Hapi Bursavi, um, in the 18th century, is the author of the mystical exegesis of the Quran entitled Ruh al-Bayah, another brilliant commentary on the Quran, unfortunately not translated into English, several volumes. Actually, one of the greatest things about this, this uh, is that it's not just his own exegesis, also his own. He also incorporates fragments from the Najmiya, from the, from the Kubrawiya Tariqa, a very important Tariqa, a Sufi mystical brotherhood in Central Asia that was more or less incorporated into the Naqshbandi's uh, course of history but whose um, insights into prophetology are quite astonishing. And some of the most interesting insights of Najmadin Kubra, Najmadin Daya, the Najmiya, the two Najmadins who wrote this great exegesis that we don't have the full version of anymore, a lot of that is found here because Bursawi incorporates a lot of that. And part of that, by the way, is that there are different prophets of our being which correspond almost exactly to the seven chakras of Hinduism, seven prophets of your being, the Moses of your being, the Abraham of your being, the Muhammad of your being, the Jesus of your being. Anyway, Bursavi says here, that he, on the same verse, that the mother of the book can be identified with the guarded tablet, Allah al-Mahfouf. And he adds, also mentioned in the, in the Quran, at Surah al-Buruj, which is Surah 85, verse 22, and he adds, since the human heart, al-qalb al-insani, is the true spiritual tablet, Allah al-haqiqi al-ma'nawi, ma'nawi is another word for spiritual. It's what Rumi refers to repeatedly as the, the, uh, the ma'na, which is the essence, as opposed to the surah, which is the form. And the ma'nawi is not just meaning, it's what it literally means, but ma'nawi is the spiritual, metaphysical, um, intended object of the words, the lafs. So the, the human heart is the true spiritual tablet. The Quran 
descended upon Muhammad's heart. Similarly, the Quran, in terms of its spiritual reality, min haythul ma'na, descended upon the hearts of his descendants. So, we can go into that maybe in the Q&A. I think, judging from the looks on people's faces, we are at the end of our... <laughs> so, what I think I will do, I think I've said quite enough. There are many more slides to go, but let's stop there. And um, was that what you had written to them? Five more minutes? No, no, it was something else. <laughs> All right. no, I, I thought you'd think that. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you if it was five minutes, but anyway. Let's, thank you let's all. Give you a big well, actually, no. I, I need to applaud you because <laughs> I, you've been a marvelous audience to speak to. Um, but I also have to apologise and, and cap and applaud your patience because the looks of exhaustion on your <laughs> faces indicated that I have spoken far too long. And so I applaud you for your patience. That's all the problem. Coming up to uh, 22 minutes past 11, so we've got eight minutes of questions or comments. And this is fantastic. Is this eight minutes for the end of what was supposed to be two sessions? Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you've done me a great favour. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so, really sorry. Mark's got a question. Mark. Oh, yes. <laughs> That was absolutely fantastic, and I just want to say how enriching it was. And I know it's a cliche and say it's more of a comment, but yeah, it's it's more of a comment. But it was what you were talking about really reflective of what's been the theme that's been running across this this conference, which is the idea of what Joe initially uh, pointed out is the 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 the, the, the universal in the, in the local. And what that that sentence where you said Gregory of Palamas. The idea that the, the uh, she's the cause of what preceded her, mm. and it's it's reflective of some things I've been recent reading recently. And I mean, in in modern philosophy, modern philosophy now there's this wrestling with the idea of contingency, the idea of this is a fragmented universe. All we have is contingency, and uh, the philosopher Quentin Mayer he says, well, there is one thing that we can talk about that is absolute, and that's the necessity of contingency itself. The necessity uh, of contingency itself. Mm. And that necessity of contingency is, is uh, this idea of the absolute being referred to in the singular is something that's also reflected in the work of Slavoj Zizek. He talks about the fragile absolute. The work of who? Slavoj Zizek. He talks about the fragile oh, absolute. Oh, yeah. yeah. The... Um Hungarian. Yes, no, Slovenian. Yeah. But he talks about the fragile absolute. And I think that this idea of the, 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 the universal in the singular is, is especially with that, that, that quote that blew my mind, is uh, the um, Gregor Pavlos. The, right. the idea that uh, the cause that we is just absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, well, without going into the, an area that I'm by no means an expert on, Ibn Sina talks about this in great detail. Avicenna. Where he talks about that which is is necessary, the contingent that is necessary through the necessity of 
the wajibul wujud, which is yeah, the necessity of existence. So you have the necessary and the contingent, but that which is necessary as contingency by virtue of the necessity of existence as such, the pure, the pure being. So we won't go into that, I'll just to open up to... I think Tom other. has a... Oh, just in case there's some of the online people might be... Yeah, there's anyone wrong? got their hands? I hope I can see here as well on the thing. Oh, right. uh, there's a, it's, it's hidden, but it, you can, it's here, so I can see. Thank you. I, I just want to thank you, because I, I feel we stood on holy ground this morning. That's that's. You, you say we look exhausted, but... It's, it's, it's been a good exhaustion, it's, it's been fabulous. Um, can I go right back to what you began with, um, and that idea, and, and then picked up later on that idea of diversity in our shared face. Um, it's, it seems, to, uh, and I haven't realised this, this was there in the Quran, but it seems to me that part of the paradigm shift that we need to make in interfaith dialogue at the minute is to stop seeing plurality and diversity as a problem that has to be solved and to see it as divinely willed, as, as how it is. And, and the fact that because it is divinely willed, it is in some ways a gift to us. It, it will be something that's resolved at, a, at the point of union. But in the meantime, while we all struggle along, it is, it's more of a gift than a Mm, mm. And I just wondered if you could mm. speak a little bit on that for us. I, I would be happy. Um, so to, I will speak more about this perhaps later. I don't think it's fair on, on, on the group now for me to speak too much on that. But there is a great deal in the Sufi literature that helps us to come to precisely the, the point of celebration of diversity that you're hinting at rather than an explanation of diversity. It's a celebration thereof rather than simply a logical explanation of a problem, but the celebration of this, I suppose from, a, from very briefly from Ibn Arabi's perspective of Tajalli, which is that um, everything in existence is the self-manifestation of the one invisible, inconceivable, absolute. But everything in existence is a, it's a self-revelation of that absolute, which remains hidden in its revelation. So it's both revelation and uh, it reveals and conceals at the same time. He says that on the day of judgment, your felicity will be in direct proportion to the to your perception of God's beauty in the different forms of his religious revelations. So the more you can see God's beauty in the different religious revelations, the more your felicity will be magnified, expanded, deepened on the day of judgment, on the resurrection. In a sense, you'll be resurrected in the form of the felicity that you have perceived of God's beauty in the form of all of his revelations and not just in your own revelation, not just in your own religion. So he says, beware of restricting God to the form of your own belief because then you're just an idolater. You're worshipping not God as such, but the, he uses this very daring phrase, al-ilah, al-makhluq, 
في الاعتقاد what you're worshipping is a divinity created in the form of your belief you're not, create, you're not worshipping God at all you're worshipping your own religion your own beliefs, your own self so he said beware of restricting God's self-revelation to what you find in your religion when you see God revealing in other religions investigate that go into it, look for the sacred the beauty, the true therein and benefit from it even if you're not called to actually follow that path because why? what you said at the beginning verse 48, chapter number 5 said God willed this diversity he could have made you one religious community he made you as you are in order to test you by means of what he's given you so vie with each other in goodness and in celebrate the diversity and gaze with joy at the manifestations of sanctity and beauty of other faiths while realizing that your shira, your minhaj, your law, and your way is different. And you just deepen your understanding of your religion through marveling at the manifestation of God's beauty in other religions. So, I'm sorry, I, I, sorry, I wish we would like to hear from other people. So I think we'll uh, have we'll conclude the morning session with again another bishop. And he had his has his uh, hand up. Right. I think. Oh, sorry. Well, we won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will have to conclude because I'm looking at the at the at the time. But I just I, I just wanted uh, to pick up because I, I feel in a sense it's providential that I. I uh, was attending a session just uh, the week before coming here on uh, a book that's just been published uh, on Mary in the Quran mm. uh, by uh, Muna Tantari and Klaus von Stoch. Um, and uh, it, it was fascinating. I, I don't want to enter into the, uh, the, the dispute about uh, whether there are female prophets in, in, in Islam, but one of the things that they pointed out in their research was coincidentally for us here that the commentators, Islamic commentators who were arguing for Mary as a prophetess were all from Al-Andalus. So, <laughs> um, but the Ghazali uh, had in his, uh, in his um, great uh, stories of the prophets and the friends of God uh, a list of prophets and, uh, and Mary. Uh, but it's prophets and friends of God. So in a sense Mary is the friend of God which may even be uh, of, a, of a higher status. But uh, the, the, the fascinating thing for me in, in that, which, which relates to our inter-religious dialogue, is that they traced in their research the, the Marian verses in the Quran, in they put them in historical order rather than the order they come in the Quran. Mm -hmm. And alongside the um, controversies between Christians and Jews about Mary, uh, that were raging in the Arabian Peninsula at that time. And looking then at how the, what is said about Mary in the Quran, in a sense, mediates between the argument between the Christians and, and, and Jews. So I just, in our current context of, a, of, of dialogue, showing even, mm. even the, 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 the um, recitation uh, is, has entered into a, a dialogue, and that should really be something that uh, gives us encouragement in the endeavour that we're on. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Good. Thank you.
very quickly because very very quickly because what you said Bishop Anthony about the friend of God being in a sense even higher than the prophet does take us to something very fundamental in in Sufism uh, and for which again I remember I, I said to Sarah Sviri how grateful I was to her about her discovery for the West, for Western Academia of Tirmidhi and Walaya and through that Ibn Arabi and his answering of the questions on Walaya. Walaya is, it can be uh, uh, translated as sanctity or friendship or guardianship and the Wali is the friend. Wali Allah is the friend of God, the saint of God and one of the names of God is Al-Wali as the protector, the patron, the friend, the guide, the lover. Imam Jafar al-Sadiq uh, the sixth Shiite Imam and the person referred to as the forebearer of all the Sufis was uh, he famously said Al Walaya Al Mahabba. What is Walaya? It's Mahabba. It's love. So the friend of God is the lover of God and the beloved of God. And according to Ibn Arabi and Tirmidhi and that that's that very strong school of thought within Sufism, Walaya is superior to Nubuwa. It's one of the most apparently blasphemous ideas for the exoteric authorities that sanctity can be regarded as higher than prophecy. But what Ibn Arabi and his school say is that the prophets per se are always higher and greater than the friends of God per se, the saints. But that their dimension of sanctity in their heart is superior to their dimension of prophecy within their heart. So within the heart of the prophet, sanctity takes priority over prophecy. <coughs> Why? <coughs> because Walaya, according to Ibn Arabi, Walaya never comes to an end. Walaya is that holiness that's rooted in Al-Wali, is rooted in God as such, and is, it cannot be circumscribed by time or place or personality. Whereas Nubuwa is defined according to the community to which the message is addressed. So the Nabi as Nabi, the messenger as a messenger, is constrained by the limitations, the message on the one hand, and the community to whom that message is addressed on the other. Whereas the Wali as Wali, is not constrained. The saint is simply one in his sanctity or her sanctity is one with the holiness of God. That has nothing to do with messages, nothing to do with relativization through addressing a particular community. That is just the intrinsic nature of holiness. Yeah? And that's how Ibn Arabi explains the encounter between Moses, the prototype of the law-giving prophet, and Khidr, the green man, this mysterious figure who is not a prophet, who is a saint, but the saint knows more than the prophet. So what does Ibn Arabi say on Surah 18, the Surah of the Cave, the encounter between Moses and Al-Khidr? He says that all Khidr did, all the green man did, was to show Moses his own dimension of walaya, which was the esoteric, the hidden dimension of his own heart, the outward face of which was nubuwa, was the message, was the law. 
So Chidr just showed Moses the two dimensions of his own heart. Chidr simply personified the dimension of Walaya proper to the heart of Moses. <coughs> so Walaya is superior to Nubuwa within the heart of the Prophet. Yeah. And this is why also the Prophet said to Ali, who is the great Waliullah par excellence, the, the great friend of God, who was called the Mawla, the master of all the Muslims, from the same root as Wali, Mawla. The Prophet said, he raised Ali's hand in front of thousands of pilgrims at the return from the last pilgrimage from Mecca to Medina. He stopped them all at this barren place in the desert, thousands of them, and then raised Ali's hand and said, whoever considers me their Mawla, their master, their guide, their Wali, Ali is his Mawla. So, did he designate Ali as his successor politically, or was he simply saying he is the spiritual master of all of you after I pass away? That's the question over which the Shias and the Sunnis have spilled so much blood. It was asked, you know, 1400 years. That what was without doubt was that he said, yes, Ali is your Mullah, he's your spiritual master. Learn from him everything once I've gone. The Shia say it also means he was to be the first caliph and not Abu Bakr. That's the political point of the controversy. But spiritually speaking, there's no controversy. Spiritually, it means that he is the Mullah. And then he said to Ali also, Ali, I am from you as well as you being from me. In the same way he said to his daughter Fatima, you are the mother of her father. He said to Ali, I'm also from you. So what he's referring to here is that I, as a prophet, derive my uh, uh, prophethood from something superior, which is the walaya in God, of which you and Fatima and my Ahl al-Bayt, my family, my descendants, are prolongations of walaya, not nubuwa, of sanctity, of holiness. And uh, my nubuwa is subordinate to that walaya of which you are the personification. I, the Prophet, personify both Walaya and Nubuwa, but insofar as I'm a Prophet, I come from you insofar as you are as a saint. Which is very, very daring, very, very controversial. But without this kind of understanding of, of um, the mystery of the divine of the Ummul Kitab, something that transcends the formal, articulated, if you like, masculine manifestation of the Logos as something intrinsically feminine, receptive, maternal, and relates to the prototype, the cosmic womb, which precedes all creation and revelation. But those sorts of distinctions, we might be able to make sense of it. So we'll have uh, a break now until um, uh, 12 o'clock, 20 minutes break, uh, 11 o'clock UK time.